Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Despite decades of declining enrollment, unions seem to be in the spotlight right now. We'll ask a labor historian why she thinks public support for labor unions is up. We know wages now have stagnated since the 70s for the working and middle classes, and of course they declined in the Great Recession. But first, as state lawmakers gathered for the first day of the veto session, one Chicago Democrat wasn't in Springfield. He was in federal court. State Representative Luis Arroyo has been accused of bribing a state senator $2,500 a month in exchange for support of legislation in the Illinois General Assembly. He's charged with one count of federal program bribery. WBEZ politics reporter Dan Mihalopoulos was at the courthouse, and he sets the scene. You know, it's a scene that uh, we're very familiar with. Uh, 219 South Dearborn is an address where uh, some political reporters spend more time than they do at City Hall or in Springfield because so many politicians over the years have been brought into the federal courthouse there. And yesterday it was the turn of State Representative Luis Arroyo, a Democrat from Chicago's northwest side. Uh, he was arrested on Friday, actually, but allowed to show up on Monday for his court appearance posted $10,000 bond, relinquished his passport, and uh, said he was not guilty, left the building without any comment. What details do we have about the government's case? It's a pretty simple case, actually. It's a bribery case. Uh, Only this time, Arroyo is the one paying the bribe, although he's an elected official. And you might say, well, what was he doing paying a bribe to another representative, actually a state senator, to another politician. And uh, what he did, he was lobbying on the side. Uh, He was moonlighting. He had a side gig as a lobbyist uh, for uh, these machines called sweepstakes machines and for one of the companies that has those machines. And so he went to a state senator and did not know, apparently, that the state senator was wearing a wire, you know, was recording their conversations and uh, told him that uh, he will give him $2,500 a month uh, to do the bidding of uh, sweepstakes over on the other side of the Capitol in the state Senate. And uh, he needed a partner because he's a, he's a representative in the Illinois House and he needed a partner in the Senate. He thought he found one. And when he delivered the first bribe check, Arroyo allegedly told that state senator, this is the jackpot. Well, we should say both the Chicago Tribune and the Sun-Times are reporting that the unnamed cooperating witness is Democratic State Senator Terry Link of Vernon Hills, but he's denied any involvement. So tell us about that. Yeah, so my colleague here and, and the WBZ politics team, Dave McKinney, reached him by phone yesterday, and uh, Link was really almost indignant, I guess, is how, how Dave described it. Um, he was very adamant, very vehement that he's not cooperating and that it should be known that anybody who is uh, cooperating will be treated this way. Uh, and, um, well, you know, Link is a senator uh, who is, uh, I believe, 72 years old, has been there uh, for quite a while out of Lake County and often carries a lot of gaming-related uh, legislation uh, in, the, uh, in the legislature in Springfield. The company Representative Arroyo is accused of moonlighting for is called Spartacus 3. What can you tell us about that company? Yeah, Spartacus 3 is his lobbying company. The client, though, was a company called VSS Inc., and um, it is registered out of uh, South Suburban Dalton. And what Arroyo was doing for them, apparently, so he's a representative. He's an elected official from Chicago, but he's a state representative. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
he's turned around and, and had a side gig lobbying City Hall here in Chicago, which in and of itself, I think, uh, is a little bit questionable, although not illegal. Uh, what is more questionable is that, besides the alleged bribery, of course, is that it appears he was carrying the weight for the um, uh, sweepstakes industry in Springfield at the same time that he was lobbying for the sweepstakes industry in Chicago at City Hall, lobbying aldermen for sweepstakes-related legislation in the city council. Well, Arroyo grilled a former gaming board attorney back in May as he testified about the legality of sweepstakes machines. Let's listen. Sweepstakes have been to court several times. They haven't lost one case yet, and they say that sweepstakes is not illegal. So why are you up here saying that it's illegal? So either you're lying or the gentleman in the back room is lying. If it's illegal, I want to know. I would like to know that. Because I wouldn't be supporting uh, the people that I'm supporting because for something that's illegal, right? So that puts me in a that puts me in a pickle, puts me in, a, in an opportunity that I don't want to be in. Dan Arroyo did not disclose that he was lobbying for sweepstakes machines during that meeting. Are there any legal implications? It certainly seems to be unethical to be uh, lobbying um, for somebody at the city of Chicago and then in your other role as an elected official going down to Springfield and engaging in that kind of action and that kind of commentary where you're defending the industry. I think you could tell he was defending the industry very vehemently and very aggressively going after the person that was criticizing that industry. It seems on its face to be a, a double standard, but he apparently has much bigger problems now that he's charged with passing bribes on behalf of that industry. Dan, give us a little background on State Representative Arroyo. How long has he been in office? Yeah, Louis Arroyo's been up in uh, in Springfield since 2006, and he's risen through the ranks of the Illinois House under House Speaker Mike Madigan. Uh, he had a, a leadership position. He's um, uh, just had a big fundraiser on September the 12th, uh, almost three weeks after he allegedly paid that bribe. And that fundraiser was, was down here in uh, in downtown Chicago and was attended by um, a lot of, of the biggest names in Illinois politics. The host committee, I, I got a copy of the invitation yesterday, the host committee uh, is led by House Speaker Mike Madigan, who's the head of the Democratic Party of Illinois as well. Also on the host committee was Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. You know, we've got to say that Arroyo is one of several elected officials um, who's gotten caught up in, in these widespread federal corruption probes. Do we have a sense about whether or not these cases are connected? And if so, how? Not really. I think, look, as you're saying, the feds seem to be everywhere yeah. these days. FBI, IRS criminal division, and the U.S. Attorney's Office under John Lausch is, is really uh, spearheading these efforts. And they're everywhere. We've seen them uh, already uh, bring a case against Alderman Ed Burke. They raided Kerry Austin's office earlier in the summer. That's another alderman from the south side. And then they were in uh, State Senator Martin Sandoval's office in Springfield, armed with search warrants, a couple of suburbs. Some, all I can say is that some of these are connected to each other and some of them are not. You know, And, and it, we still don't have the whole picture yet because... We have essentially uh, just a a few charges, but a lot of raids. Well, while Representative Arroyo has pleaded not guilty, Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan has called for him to immediately resign from office or be removed. House GOP leader Jim Durkin also called for him to step down. I am now calling upon Representative Luis Arroyo to resign by the end of business today. Otherwise... I will be filing filing the proper paperwork 
to begin the special investigative process in the special investigation special investigative committee under House Rule 91. What has the representative said about his his plans? So he didn't say anything when he was leaving the Dirksen Federal Building after his court appearance, but Leah said he pled not guilty, and then we called his office, and his aide gave us a statement which said that pleaded not guilty and is going to fight the charges and believes that he will ultimately be, quote, completely vindicated. So, um, you know, he's saying that uh, he's going to fight the U.S. attorney and the feds. But in the meantime, with House Speaker Madigan and House GOP Leader Durkin saying, hey, you need to get out of office, how much weight does that carry? Well, sure, it carries a lot of weight when you have a bipartisan uh, show like that. And just uh, Madigan alone pretty much dominates the Capitol. Uh, He removed uh, another representative some years ago, I believe it was Derek Smith, around 2012-2013 over um, charges that were, were filed against him. You know, at the end of the day, you can't force Arroyo, though, to resign because you only have to, to be removed necessarily if you're convicted. And right now he's, he's charged and uh, presumed innocent. All right. That's WBEZ politics reporter Dan Mahalopoulos. Dan, thanks. My pleasure. Membership in American labor unions has been falling steadily since the late 1950s, and the percentage of workers in unions has dropped from 20 to 10 percent since 1983. But there's been a recent uptick in high-profile union activity. The United Auto Workers Union strike set to start tonight at midnight. Making record uh, profits, uh, not wanting to... uh share uh, uh, the pie. We're just fighting for our rights today. Will we need? I want to remind you that there needs to be a nurse and a social worker and a counselor in every single school. Nearly 50,000 auto workers just ended their longest strike in 50 years. Nurses are on strike in several states, and here in Chicago, teachers have been striking over salary, class size, and the need for more support staff. It's all happening as, according to Gallup polls, unions enjoy the highest level of support in 15 years. Elizabeth Shermer is a labor historian and associate professor of history at Loyola University of Chicago. She says she believes these high levels of support are based on the inclusive messaging the unions are using. They stand for better for all, not just our own sort of membership. And the Chicago teachers have always been out there on the lines, really since 2012, showing this is about what's going on in our schools. And really, they have been an inspiration for teachers, you know, across the country. We saw, you know, the teacher strikes. I like to call them uprisings last year in Arizona, uh, West Virginia, and Oklahoma. And it's a real statement that they were not just talking those harrowing videos. You can still probably find them on YouTube to about just how many extra jobs some of those teachers were working, but how much they were still giving back in terms of paying for the school supplies that their students needed. So you draw a direct line from those actions right back to Chicago. I think so. And actually, the thing that not a lot of folks remember about Chicago is that Chicago has always been sort of a hotbed and a really important place for the American labor movement. A lot of the attention goes on Los Angeles. It goes um, onto New York City. But if you think back to Chicago, y'all go down to Pullman, right down there, and you can see how important the brotherhood of uh, Pullman uh, workers were. Our industrial unions here in Chicago, the dissident unions uh, in in the 60s and 70s, Ed Sadlowski, who just recently passed, 
And then also Chicago was a part of those incredible 2006 May 1st day demonstrations, A Day Without Immigrants, which is unions and immigrants together talking about um, how important workplace justice is for the entire country. I want to talk about how this moment compares to what we've seen in recent years past when we saw this this rash of right-to-work legislation um, in the Midwest, Michigan, that legislation passed there, I mean, in Wisconsin. So what is changing in the country's political consciousness? Right-to-work laws in the Midwest are actually being passed in a, a way that they weren't passed in the 40s and 50s when they were only being passed in southern and western states. Those were, of course, the states which would be singled out in the mid-1960s um, in the Voting Rights Act as you know, having some of the worst voting rights abuses uh, in the country. Here, they're being done in the Midwest by heavily gerrymandered legislatures. And they're being signed by Republican governors. And that's a big shift because no politician would dare put it on the legislative agenda in the 40s and the 50s, even in the American South and West. And here in the Midwest, where it's also not just ground zero for labor rights, it's ground zero for voting rights. That's what we're really actually sort of seeing right now, that that's what's really sort of shifting right now. We know wages now have stagnated since the 70s for the working and middle classes. And, of course, they declined in the Great Recession. Well, at one point in the mid-50s, we saw union membership peak at about 35 percent of the workforce. And and we've been in a steady decline since then. Is that just about right-to-work legislation or something else shifted (laughs) in, in the workplace that has, you know, drawn people away from union jobs? I always think about right to work, and actually the labor movement has always struggled to come up with a good you know, tagline to go against it, the right to starve. I always talk about it about the right to rule, um, because it really was about that if you can rule the shop place, if you can sort of frustrate democracy on in the workplace, then you can start to have that impact. And so what tends to happen in right to work states is that you start to see more and more anti-union legislation, or actually just anti-worker legislation that limits your rights and benefits on the job. The other thing that has really happened, right to work laws were a part of attracting a lot of that industry that we used to have here uh, in the Midwest, bringing it on down into the American South and West, promising uh, business executives that they wouldn't have to worry about unions, their taxes would be low, the regulations minimal. So a lot of those good union jobs were slowly being lost before those plants were actually shuttered. But why did American workers also start to push away from unions? Was it because they were looking for those jobs and this was the lifeline? Well, it's hard to organize. The thing is that, you know, we talk about, you know, free choice. We have employer free choice. And I encourage everyone to go take a look at the new movie, The Factory, the documentary, excuse me. We spoke to the the, the filmmaker uh, last week. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, It's an extraordinary documentary. And you can actually hear the pressure and intimidation on that workforce. That fear. It's very difficult. And, you know, in California, I was lucky enough to live there after they had, I was in a union in California, uh, that they had passed card check where all you needed to do to do an election was just sign a membership card. And that was enough to get you to your more than just over 50%, you know, to get union recognition. That's not the case when you actually have to have an election. And on election day, when you're worried that you're, you're being threatened, that your plant might close, my goodness, how do you do that? That's a part of that issue. Now, we also need to talk about the fact that the labor movement has not always been on the progressive vanguard, and especially in terms of making sure that all members are treated equally, regardless of their race, their gender, their sexuality, their immigrant status. And that's something that also has plagued the labor movement, even though it has really sort of transformed. You know, I encourage everyone to take a look at the executive board 
and the leadership of the Chicago Teachers Union, if you want to just see the diversity of Chicago reflected right back on to who's actually teaching in our schools, but also who's representing that union. You know, Elizabeth, I want to talk about what's happening in the court system. The Supreme Court, there was a major um, decision there. Talk about that. Well, and actually there's two. All eyes were, of course, on Janice, a court case that actually is coming out of Illinois. Um, But then we also had Epic Systems, and Epic Systems really impacted workers' ability to be a part of class action suits. And then, of course, we had Janus, which is about limiting the abilities of unions to collect what are called agency fees. I always like to call them about fair share. The idea of fair share fees is that you don't have to join a union. No one's going to force you to join the union, but you're going to get the benefits and the rights of being from that union contract. So you should pay your fair share to, it is a smaller, it's a percentage. Of the, of the union dues in order to make sure that the union can actually bargain and better represent you, and especially if you have any grievance uh, procedures. Now, in both of those cases, you know, right-to-work laws, we actually didn't see them much on the ballot um, in states after 1958, and really where that fight, that fight was happening out in the court. So if we actually take back a look at the legislative history, unfortunately, there's nothing surprising about how this is where the court uh, lined up, particularly with the most recent, um, with the most recent appointees. But I think the really interesting thing that I would encourage everyone to go take a look at are those fiery dissents. Epic Systems, it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, followed up about a month later by Elena Kagan. And you can actually see there not only a sense that the struggle in the courts isn't, there's no reason to think that it will be over, but also that it's a reflection of how there has always been this war over workers' rights and those basic sort of responsibilities for all employees versus their employer. Hmm. So where are we seeing union membership grow or decline today? Is it steady or is it booming in Uh, certain parts of the country? What are we saying? That's what's amazing to me. So union density is about 10.5%. That's the percentage of the workforce that is uh, of the workforce that is actually in a union. And, you know, you look, it's hard in the private sector. So like those auto workers, that's about 6.4% right now. But the what's really keeping union membership up is in the public sector. And that's where we have the largest growth. And that is our teachers right? It is our transit workers. It is those folks. And that really is where the growth um, is happening and sort of holding strong and steady. And that's one of the reasons why Janice was such an important court case, because that was specifically about public employee unions' ability to collect those agency shops. And they have been, you know, a really sort of potent force, not only in the workplace to make sure that they are just and democratic workplaces, but also they have been in the, in the political sphere and not just in Illinois, and Chicago Teachers Union, you know, very much a part of the political scene uh, in Chicago and, of course, Illinois. But in California as well, that's one of the reasons Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, when he um, was in office, he tried very hard through ballot referendums to strip the power of those public sector unions. So, Elizabeth, we have just about 30 seconds here, but I want you to quickly talk about what this means for companies. As we said, General Motors had uh, their longest strike in 50 years. It cost them about a billion Dollars. The company still made $2.3 billion in the last quarter. So are strikes really having an impact on labor right now? If the struggle continues, it certainly will. And that that's something that employer, employers, uh, CEOs are going to have to work on, especially since there was a lot of public support. 
And I think that that's important because if you go take a look at some of those pictures from the strikes, it wasn't just the, the workers out there on the line. It was also they were getting a tremendous amount of community support. And that is all what has in the past really made employers really nervous. And also, even in the mid-50s, that we only had about 35 percent union density, it doesn't change the fact that the unions actually there was a way that they were sort of elevating the expectations on the job. So what happened in the UAW strike and what might happen here in Chicago, it does actually sort of elevate, hopefully, expectations that we have to stop this race for the bottom for all Americans, whether they're in a union or not. That's Elizabeth Shermer, a labor historian and associate professor of history at Loyola University, Chicago. Professor Shermer, thanks. Thank you. And that's today's Reset. If you have questions or comments about the show, call our hotline. The number is 888-915-9945. That's 888-915-9945. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon.